0: Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Robin Lacey. Robin is a second-year master's student in the archaeology department at MUN, and completed her BA in archaeology at the University of Calgary in 2014. Her research focuses on historic archaeology in Newfoundland and New England, exploring burial landscapes and the relationship to 17th century settlements. This summer, she'll be excavating at Fairyland for four weeks in search of the early burial ground at the Colony of Avalon. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm delighted that you're here. It's all—it's <laughs> always great to have a chat about uh, graveyards and gravestones and burial landscapes, and I'm, so I'm very excited. When I saw your, i you know, we were just talking before the show about social media and how that's yeah. kind of how people find each other now, and, and um, you know, so I had seen something that was on Twitter or, and then found your blog, and I thought... We need to have fun <laughs> and chat. So, so tell me a little bit, I, I guess, about how you got interested in archaeology. What's your what's your origin story?
1: Uh, my origin story is probably that um, my family used to go to museums. Like all of our holidays would just be like all I can remember is like heritage sites and going to museums and going to like ruins if we were in Italy or something. Um, and then the earliest job I can remember wanting was an archaeologist. In grade one, and I haven't changed it at all since then. And now I'm here, so it's a it's a good, really straight goal that I had for that.
0: <laughs> uh, it's, it's so it's so such a similar story in, in some ways because I was had the same family that we'd always go to museums and yeah. and uh, and and I remember very clearly being five years old and going to the Royal Ontario Museum uh, in in Toronto, mm-hmm. and there was a a, a paleontology exhibit. And great great kind of dioramas of dinosaurs. It's all changed now with the rebuild of the ROM. But mm-hmm. at that point there was a diorama of a paleontologist at the bottom of an excavation. First thing you saw when you went in. I remember being remember being five and thinking, that's what I want to do when I when I grew up. And then and then it was all paleontology and archaeology and, and I ended yeah. up, you know, doing a degree in archaeology and, and then kind of shifting into public folklore stuff. But yeah, those kind of formative years are formative. Like it does kind of
1: Definitely. Did you have a
0: favorite museum when you were a kid?
1: Um not that i can remember when i was a kid probably like middle school the um the royal bc museum yeah my dad's family's from bc and that's where i moved here from um yeah there's that whole museum especially the uh, victorian street section in the winter they decorate it for christmas and they have carolers in victorian clothes walking around in it um currently it is the isabella stewart gardner museum in boston yeah, that's a that's an amazing. Museum. And what what is it
0: about that particular museum that?
1: Um, she and her husband collected all of the art in the gallery, and then. Uh, I think after her husband died maybe it was established or like during his life and then he passed away but she designed the whole museum herself and it was like there through the whole thing. It was apparently a pain for the architects like telling them that they were doing stuff wrong but she personally like placed everything that's in the gallery. It's like how she wanted you to see it. Right. And there's a particular painting of a woman on a train with light across her face and one of the museum guards told me that I was in the wrong spot to view the painting because I came from the wrong direction and if you stand in one corner of the room, the light from the window next to it looks like it's coming into the painting but it's the light in the painting like that so she definitely put it there for that exact angle yeah and it's just amazing
0: yeah so how did you how did you decide to come to memorial then
1: um, I did a year of my undergrad at Durham University in England mm-hmm. and because I really wanted to do like European and British archaeology, but you can't really do that in Alberta. So I went over to England and then the closest thing I could get to British archaeology in Canada was coming to Newfoundland where there's like that crossover part with like the colonial colonies right. uh, without having to do British tuition fees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit much for the exchange rate. Yeah. So Memorial, I started looking at it and then I contacted Barry um, and was asking him if there were gravestones I could look at because I'm really interested in like the inscriptions of text, right. um, like the forms of the letters. And Barry said that there aren't really gravestones because we didn't know where the burial ground was. Like dot dot dot. So I'm doing that. <laughs> That's
0: great. So so yeah. So this is this is going to be part of your project. This is your second year in yes, the field in, at Fairland. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and how's that going? How's the, how's the work in Fairland going?
1: Uh, the work is going well. I don't know if the search is going well. Uh, we don't have any graves yet, so I can't tell you where the burials are right yeah. now. Um, the whole thing I was doing for my thesis was like a statistical analysis of how uh, burials. And burial landscapes are related to the settlements that they mm-hmm. were established by, sort of like the earliest arrangement of an English settlement um, or British settlement in the 17th century, and where they were choosing to establish the first burial spaces, and then like seeing if there were any patterns for like the century or like break if you can break it down at all, right. um, and then looking at what was most statistically likely and putting that. Uh, at Fairland to try and help us um, narrow down something because it is such a big site and you can't just like rip the downs apart with an excavator.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit then about uh, the the relationship between the living and the dead and, and landscape because because there was this shift at some mm-hmm. point that that in the earlier period um, the dead and the living kind of shared space. Yes, definitely. Yeah. 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 And and why was that? And why was there a shift away from that?
1: Um, I think a lot of it had to do with, like, overcrowding in Europe of burial spaces where, like, when there was plagues and stuff and they just couldn't put uh, more people in the ground and the people would comment on, like, this smell. But that's not something that happened very common in, like, rural areas. But there was definitely, like, a shift in religious spaces after the Reformation um, of, like, people not being allowed to be buried in certain areas because they had converted to, like, the Anglican Church or were still Catholic in the British Isles. Um, but then also people became sort of scared of the dead body, mm-hmm. and thinking that maybe it had some sort of a health issue when, like, if it's not Ebola or like another really contagious disease, there's not really an issue there. Um, so people started wanting to move burials out of the area. Um, one of the towns I looked at was Guilford, Connecticut, and their burial space is in the middle of the green, and it's still there. Um, there, I can find a record that the graves themselves were moved. But in the early 1800s, the ground was leveled and all of the gravestones were moved. So they said the graveyard was removed, but it, like there's no evidence that it actually was. But this author, Timothy Dwight, came through in, I think, I think, in 1800. And he said that the ground had been deformed by the graves and that it was unhealthy, that it was so close to people for physical health, but also mental health, that they saw death in Mm -hmm. the middle of the town and people became like very concerned about that right so it's sort of like an erasure of the burial spaces that used to be really central and in some cases are still
0: (laughs) and and so in in a Newfoundland context uh when when did that shift kind of happen when did people start moving burial spaces further out of the living spaces
1: I'm not totally sure I sort of was only looking at like 17th and 18th century Newfoundland um Which means it's the older spaces that are still sort of associated with the towns. I I would assume, sort of, probably the 19th century. Yeah, Um, but I'm not. Like I know, I know in the
0: in the city of Saint John's. Um, you know there was a, there was an act or a law passed in 1849 about oh. uh, you know burials within the city limits. And I know and I know this the city of Saint John's is is a little bit different from yeah. kind of rural context. But yeah, there was, I know in, in Saint John's, like some of the, the 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 most central cemeteries, like the Anglican Cathedral mm-hmm. Cemetery. Y- yeah, it, by by the 1840s, it had kind of uh, yeah, a, a, it was kind of the end of its time. Yes. Yeah. and all these other graveyards kind of popped up around the edges of the city at that point. I guess which would have been kind of out in the country. Yeah. Right? Um, so you, you, uh, you have an interest in, uh, not just kind of the locations of burials, but also the, the physical reminders of those spaces, yeah. tombstones and tombstone inscriptions. Yes. How did you develop that interest?
1: Um, the first field school I ever did was right after my first year of my undergrad, because I wanted to make sure that I didn't hate excavating. Right. I feel like that would be a really bad thing to discover in grad school that you just, didn't like the field aspect of your entire field. Uh, <laughs> so I went and did a field school through the University of Liverpool, and it was in Ireland serving cemeteries, and then it was on the Isle of Man doing an excavation of an Iron Age roundhouse site. Mm-hmm. And when we were in Ireland, um, we were recording what was on the headstones, what they were made of, the dimensions, sort of like the text and the everything, everything about them, and it was Catholic and Protestant cemeteries in uh, northeast of Ireland. And I was sort of looking at how the scripts were formed Um, because we had to record the standard fonts and everything and how they eroded and how you could sort of use the way that they eroded to tell what they had said if it was illegible otherwise. Um, So I started trying to develop sort of like a relative dating technique based on the patterns that were left by letters and that paper is in peer review. So oh, fingers crossed on that. Yeah, <laughs> it's been <great>. months.
0: <laughs> yeah. I know on one of your, one of your blog posts, um, and maybe just mention your blog. How, if people want to find your blog, how do they, uh, how do they find it? It's
1: spadeandthegrave at wordpress.com.
0: Okay. Yeah. One, of the, <laughs> one of your posts was talking about where stones come from. Mm. Uh, in, a, in a kind of a New England and Newfoundland context. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, so a lot of, like, that's part of my thesis as well with the Farallon gravestones, but a lot of the 17th or the 18th century gravestones in Newfoundland were imported, mm-hmm. um, as far as we know, and Jerry Pochus has written quite a lot about that. Yeah. Um, like, where stones come from, um, and the, how you can tell from the makers and the records of importation and stone types what quarries they may have come out of and everything um but i'm not convinced that they were all imported because that seems kind of ridiculous especially for a population that maybe was more trade-based um, so i'm like currently looking for 18th century gravestones that may have been um carved here which would be yeah. really cool yeah um but yeah that was that post was about the one the one at fairland that i'm pretty sure came from massachusetts and there's one in the Anglican Cathedral. That they dug out of the ground. That's almost identical. Yeah, and it's it's like the classic death's head with the the wings, the feathers on them, and then uh, little circles in the corner, and the identical border like foliage imagery. And it's like one of the common New England ones. So I can't find a carver's name anywhere because it's just used as a filler image in books on the subject because yeah. it's so common. But yeah. no one's it's, mentioning. <laughs> and it.
0: And it's almost like that that classic image of what we think a yeah. tombstone should look like, yeah. right? You know, with the death's head and that that kind of very. It's great (laughs) shape and yeah um so can, can you talk a little bit about kind of that that death's head imagery and where that comes from
1: yeah um a lot of it came from like earlier like medieval stuff in europe that was like the memento mori like reminding you that um death was coming (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and they would like not just on graves they'd have it on jewelry like the the little pendant i have on today is a tiny tiny skull um and they need books and basically on everything because it was more of a common theme that people didn't shy away from acknowledging with mortality rates being higher in the medieval period and everything Um, and then it sort of came back it was like a resurgence in the 17th and 18th century to put memento mori imagery on gravestones uh and that really took off in new england for sure um but it's not like it's called like a puritan imagery uh, quite a lot but you can find it on other groups Mm um i think there's some jewish graves in the new england area as well that have quite a lot of that imagery on them too uh yeah
0: (laughs) and then and then there was a shift kind of in the in the in the the motif you know over time yeah it softened a little yeah i guess yeah yeah people
1: started shying away from being so blunt (laughs) basically they wanted like the wording changed you'd say that people passed away and they went to sleep and this is the resting place it's not like where your corpse is buried um, so yeah people tried to change the wording um, and that I think went along with some of the graves being moved farther out of town they like out of mind and you can really see after the American Civil War the funerary industry becoming more of a separated thing hmm. whereas um, prior to that you might have like a wake in your home and people would be used to washing a body themselves um, it's really become quite separate yeah. Um, and there's some groups in the States right now that are trying to really, like, bring that back together and, like, advocating for home wakes and, like, having the family more involved with the funeral process. Yeah. It's
0: really cool. And th- and that's interesting because in Newfoundland, um you know that that kind of rise of a of a funeral industry happened very very late okay. in in rural Newfoundland, you know. And many many older people still have memories of, you know, having wakes in in their parlors that's and awesome. I've heard many stories about people having to remove windows in their houses to get the coffins uh, kind of so in cool. and out. Yeah. <laughs> um I, while we're talking about death's heads and symbolism, I, I wanted to talk about hex foils.
1: Hex foils. <laughs> Now,
0: if, if someone <laughs> doesn't know what a hex foil is, what is it?
1: It's a uh, hex foil is also called a daisy wheel or a witch mark, and it looks like an abstract six-pointed flower. Uh, basically Um, and it would have been drawn it's called in medieval graffiti it's called a compass drawn um, mark which was carved into churches quite a lot but it predates like medieval Catholicism and like you can see it in Roman stuff in Rome as well as like Romano-British objects gravestones and like like columns and everything like it's a pretty common it's just like a general sort of protection mark that you put it on something that you want to keep from like being invaded by evil people would put it over their doorways in medieval Spain to keep evil from coming in or like over the fireplace and windows and everything um, but it's not really seen on gravestones until you come to New England and I've seen one or two in Newfoundland as well yeah. which they become even more abstract
0: and here. so where have you seen them here
1: um, I was reading I hadn't seen any and then I was reading one of push's papers and then I noticed there was one in the middle of one of the gravestones. I think it was in Port de Grave.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I haven't gone and seen that one in person. Yeah. I got really excited and took a photo of it <laughs> in the book. Um, but yeah, they're really common in New England. And the blog post that I did about this has one example that has twenty, I think, hex foils going all the way down the borders and they're like under the skull in the middle and everything. Yeah. Um, Yeah, in churches you can find them on baptismal fonts as well as like on the floor and on the pews and in the chancel and everywhere over the windows Um.
0: and it's one it's one of these um, aspects of material culture that may have you know shifted like we we sometimes see that in vernacular architecture as as hex marks on barns you know very common in Pennsylvania Dutch settlements and and there's even some thought, maybe you know, people often will will ask uh, ask us, you know, why why are there those circles on everyone's doors on sheds in Newfoundland? And it may be part of that of a similar oh, okay. tradition, you that, know. Yeah. And um, there's no real good answer about why people paint those marks on on barn doors and shed doors and fishing stage doors, but it may be part of this whole belief in kind of um, you know protective magic.
1: Yeah, and it really it went out of popularity after the Reformation and in. in in the UK, um, because the Anglican Church sort of saw it as a like archaic aspect of medieval Catholicism, so they really wanted to like try and eradicate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, after it became like sort of be not allowed. You could see it in more secretive places in people's houses but not like being carved loudly into church pews anymore. Yeah, um, And so it sort of fell out of use there but that's also the colonial period and people were coming into North America. So um, it's sort of the thought that it was fossilized with the settlers coming over and it went out of use in the UK but became really, like, a big thing. Yeah. And that might be because, like, they were coming to a place that they were unfamiliar with and really clung to, like, the protection aspect of the marks and yeah. everything.
0: So then why would why would uh, a, a grave marker need a protective mark?
1: Their soul, maybe? I'm not <laughs> sure. There hasn't really been anything, like, written about them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah I couldn't find anything when I was looking at it, just like there's a flower on this gravestone, and I was like that's not a flower right, yeah, <laughs> um yeah, so I'm trying to maybe find out something, but of course, there's not really records of stuff. Well,
0: there's a, a future peer reviewed yeah <laughs> reviewed article for you right there. I've got a yeah. list going, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um yeah, and especially like they brought carvers over with them and people who started their own gravestone ca- starving starving um carving tradition in New England, so um they could have been bringing that with them. That wasn't something you'd be seeing in mm-hmm. gravestones in England and what their reasoning was exactly. I'm not sure.
0: So can, can we track from, from archival records or from the physical record, can we track specific carvers then in, in the New England? Uh?
1: There are some books um, on the carvers. Uh, they, they sort of, there's some motifs that cross all of them, like the death's head and different foliage things that were popular at the time, and they all just sort of adapted them to their own styles. Uh, they used the the hex foils in quite a lot of them. And the other sort of, there's like a spiraled motif uh, that someone sent me an article recently that said it may have come from the really old swastika
0: oh yes yeah, sun, sun symbol yeah. yeah
1: ones that had multiple arms that became this sort of like spiraled pattern yeah i've seen that on a lot of gravestones as well and one that kind of looks like a spider's web <laughs> right <laughs> not sure <laughs> what that one's about yeah.
0: yeah so so what um what actually do we have from fairyland in terms of of markers how, how many stones or stone fragments are, are there
1: three fragments two gravestones okay and we realized last fall that two of them fit together (laughs) so we have two gravestones which is great um neither of them have a date on them one of them has a first name uh and the early i think it's a 1623 census uh recorded two people named nicholas uh h something at fairland so that could have been one of their gravestones one was a carpenter and the other one was a gentleman so whether Mm. or not it was given to him because he was a friend and couldn't afford it or if the gentleman could afford this fancy gravestone because they had slate cutters at fairland um but we do know that now that they are local slate okay, okay. Like, that's been the suspicion but as part of my thesis I did PXRF testing with Dr. Stephen Piercy in geology
0: right yeah and so now for yeah. the, for, <laughs> for the novice out there can you can you explain what that what that means and how that works?
1: PxRF uh, yeah so it, it shoots x-ray beams into the stone and reads the elements in it so there's one for major elements and there was a laser for minor elements and it can tell the proportions of them. So what I did was take, The one machine only fit the very small piece of the gravestone that we have, but we know it's a piece of this other one, so didn't have to test the other one as well. did a lot of points on the one, and then I tested on some 17th century slate tile pieces that we know they were making locally in Fairland, mm-hmm. and then we went to the quarry site that Barry identified as part of his master's thesis, where the slate matched from the roof tiles, and we took quarry samples and we like triangulated them, and the readings are very, very similar. Mm-hmm. The most outlying in the data was from the quarry samples, and that's probably because I was picking samples that I didn't have to cut off the rock, not for carving, just they were loose So I wasn't, like, looking for really nice stone. It was just any available stone. So it's probably, the outliers are probably just me. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. So we we do know then that there were stones being carved locally using local materials, using uh, kind of Yeah, and it really doesn't make
1: sense for them to have been importing gravestones at that point in the 1620s. And we think they're probably associated with the 1620s burials, um, because the only record we have of any people dying in Fairland was the one letter that George Calvert wrote um, saying that over the winter of 1628, 29 nine or ten people died. And that's the only mention we have at all. And one of the gravestones says 6-2 on it. And that could be like the like age 62 or 1662 or 16... 16- 20-something. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's really, like, there's just a little tiny chunk.
0: And what in what context were those were those pieces of stone found? Yeah,
1: so the, the two pieces that fit together were found, I think, just in front of the brewery and bakehouse, which is on the eastern side of the colony, um, just before the ditch and the little bridge that you walk across, if you're there. And the bigger piece was found inside of the ditch, and they're all broken, and they, like, it's, it's slate, so they would have had to have fallen very violently to have broken in the way that they did. Um, so they were probably purposely smashed. Uh, but they were all found in 17th century contexts, like mid-early. So they would have had to have been broken, established as a gravestone, and then broken before the end of the 17th century right. and buried. And it's fairly likely that like David Kirk and company may have been responsible for that, is our current idea for that, because he didn't really approve that there were Catholics there before he arrived at the colony. Okay. Yeah. So eradicating a Catholic burial space or a perceived Catholic burial space might have been a mm. motivation for the stones being smashed.
0: Mm. So uh, do, <laughs> do you have a, a personal theory on where these burials might have taken place in Fairyland?
1: I mean, I've had several. and They've all been disproved.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Walk me through that then. Like, So what was your initial hypothesis and then how... How did you disprove it?
1: Okay. Um, so the colony had a wall around it. Um, and part of the stats that I was looking at was whether or not a fortified town, the completely enclosed, if the wall had any or the ditch had any, um, like, sway on whether or not they buried people in what is considered the center of town or exterior of the town. And when I ran that, it is 50-50 split between whether or not they were inside or outside of fortified towns. So it had a little bit less sway than I thought. Um But one of the speculated areas, and it's actually on one of the interpretation signs at Fairland, was that between the ditch and the kitchen garden in the eastern end, there would have been graves right there. So um, Barry and his crew dug two really long trenches across there a decade or so ago. And then I dug a couple more trenches um, last year after we did we did a ground penetrating radar survey as well mm-hmm. at fairland uh, just basically to test to see if you could find anything so i marked anomalies and used that to base where i was going to put trenches and there wasn't anything there <laughs> there was a post hole if that's interesting but it's not a grave <laughs> um, it was a cool post hole because i was i was babbling on about soil features and my volunteers had no idea what i was talking about and then we found one like day two so i could show them Um, So I checked that area out. There's nothing there. And it was very close to where the gravestones were found. So if they had been smashed, they could have been thrown or rolled or something. But there was nothing there. A couple other spots. And another theory was that it could have been south up on top, just above the settlement. And they could have rolled down if they'd broken. And there were some really interesting anomalies up there. But it turned out to be the southern defensive ditch. Uh, instead of the graves, but that hadn't been identified yet either. So that was really interesting to find. Yeah. Like it's, it's, if you go to Fairland, there's like a ridge right behind the town and it's the edge of that ridge is basically where they had a bunch of sod stacked up to put a wooden wall on top of. Right. So that's why it might have be still such like a sharp corner up there. Yeah. Which is really cool. Um,
0: so you're checking off your, your possible locations. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so those were like the second most likely based on like local evidence and what people had been speculating And the proximity to the gravestones but also the statistical analysis said that like the east and the south were in general like the second and third most likely statistically um and the most likely based on whatever breakdown i do of the numbers and like regions and newfoundland versus new england and everything is that it's somewhere in the central core area of the town like depending on what you think the core is i'm going with just like inside the walls at this point um so the summer i'm digging around the bakery basically and the Mm. brew house and that fireplace was incorporated into the david kirk house after he arrived and eventually built a second house there to live in um so we might be digging through the floor of that in case he maybe was horrible <laughs> and put a house on top of the graves <laughs> not as likely probably but um there's a big area there that's never been excavated because there's a bunch of fill that's fallen down on top of it so everyone who's coming with me this summer is going to have the pleasure of digging through like four feet of grapple with me <laughs> It would be really great. And there's a couple areas in front as well. Like the gravestones were found there. But we have to dig down to the subsoil to see if there's a feature that goes farther. Yeah. Um, And it's never been dug down to that point.
0: I I want to talk a little bit in the the few minutes we have left just about public... Archaeology and just kind of this idea of like getting kind of getting people interested in in the work that you're doing.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to like implement social media as much as possible in that and be like, I'm here, I'm doing this. I'm like putting as much of my research online for people to access and like comment on and talk to me about if they have ideas as possible. Like Instagram a little bit, but a blog and Twitter mostly. And it's really good as well at Fairland because it is like an open public site with archaeologists digging during the week and people can come up and talk to us. So I try to like make sure people are aware of what i'm doing and the tour guides bring the tours to me now so i'm, I'm basically on the tour track at this point um and i i'm right on it now because the bakery is one of the stops and i'm gonna be just right around there so I, yeah i give a little like talk to anyone who wants to come up and chat with me at fairyland all summer
0: and if people want to follow you on twitter what's your twitter handle
1: it's robin with a y underscore la
0: <laughs> and, and the blog again is. Spade in the Grave. And in the last couple of minutes we have, uh, you had mentioned before we start uh, about a possible little nerdy treasure hunt that we could send some people on oh, yeah. to find uh, <laughs> kind of a hidden uh, hex foil.
1: Yeah, so there is a hex foil at the rooms, and it is on a Irish sailor's chest. And if people have been there, they probably know the one I'm talking about. But you have to crouch on the floor to see it. So if you can find a trunk in the room somewhere and sort of sit on a weird angle on the floor <laughs> and tilt your head in the light in a certain direction, there's a hex foil that's been painted over um, to probably to protect the sailor. And then the trunk has a new coat of paint on it. And it was like changed a little bit. So it's it's sort of made to look like it's something else. But if you see in the light, you can see the carved lines underneath.
0: So this yes. is this is a, this is a this is great. This We've never done this on the show. This is a challenge <laughs> then for people. It is to go out, find the hex foil, take a picture, tweet it to you. Yeah,
1: tweet me your photos. <laughs> that'd be and, great. And
0: I'm, and I'm sure like if people are doing, you know, uh, in some fabulous cemeteries, you wouldn't be adverse to being yeah. tweeted some Yeah, I'd like to know pictures. any yeah.
1: pictures people have of hex foils or any of the spirally designs or anything, especially in Newfoundland. <laughs> yeah. I'm working on those.
0: Well, we'll put that out and, and who knows what we what we might get. Yeah, that'd be great. So um, I guess just to to, to wrap up, you're gonna be digging uh, in Fairyland yes. over the summer. And if people want to 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 check that out, how do they yeah, how do they find you?
1: I'll be at Fairyland um, weekdays from
0: like all of July, basically, the third
1: yep. to twenty eighth I'm digging. Um, I'll have a different crew of volunteers but I'll, I'll be there.
0: <laughs> and I know, and if people are interested, the Colony of Avalon has yes. a, a website and they can find uh, them out and, and check them out as well. Yeah, there's
1: a little museum. It's lovely and you can go on a guided tour or they can just send you down once you go through the museum to do a self-guided tour and during the week all summer, I think from mid-June through August, there's archaeologists on site.
0: Yeah. And then what's your, what's your long-term goal? You, you finish this? What do you want to do? What do you want to do when you've done your, your thesis? Um,
1: finish all the list of papers I've got at first. Yeah. <laughs> um, (laughs) Um, Considering PhDs at some point, uh, probably would be doing that in the UK. I'm kind of interested in looking at post-Reformation burial practices because there was some, like, suddenly Catholics had become taboo and weren't allowed to be buried in consecrated grounds that they owned previously. Um, So there's a lot of really interesting changing burial practices there, but also looking at the relationship between English settlements and the ones in Newfoundland, potentially. If I can find any 17th century burials here first, that would be a good correlation. Um, Or looking at archaeology in museums would be a combo of the two would be a perfect sort of career path.
0: (laughs) Great. Well, good luck with everything and, (laughs) (laughs) and good luck with the summer. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ich Thanks for listening.